Good morning. Thanks, Jeremy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Two Rivers. When I was searching for it initially, a long time ago, I was looking for Seven Rivers Church because it felt like it would be like more like a like like seven feels like a more appropriate number for the number of rivers in a church name. Couldn't find it. Uh, This has been my name is Greg Hook. Uh, This has been my church home. My wife Sarah Hook is right here. Uh, She loves sitting up front with me. Loves the front row. We are front row people. Um, No, we're not. been my church home, our church home for like eight years, I think. That's all right. Yeah. Um, I said this in the first service, because everything I'm going to say, I think I said in the first service. Um, I love that our church is um, a family and not a factory. We are not a production of stuff. We are not highly greased, efficient um, industry. We are inefficient at times and slow and bumpy. Um, I really like that. I like that we're a family over a factory. Um, I also like that we are people. We're people-oriented over production-oriented. Um, I come to church here not because of this, but because of this and my friendships here. Um, th- honestly, this, to me, on Sunday mornings is kind of meh. Um, <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's okay. Um, any church you go to, you got to compromise on something, and I am not compromising on people. Uh, you can go to a great production if you want to. You can. Uh, but the greatest churches have always been marked by what happens on the other days of the week, not Sunday. Whether or not we're hospitable, opening our homes, whether or not we are actually salty, light bearers out in our community, whether or not we actually are kind and confess and forgive. And so this is like, and there's a bunch of talent up here. Don't get me wrong. Um, but this is kind of meh, but like this is holy. The kingdom of heaven is not up here. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst, within you. So I love that about our church. Um, so if you're new, welcome. Welcome to Two Rivers. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, we are in a sermon series right now in the book of Ecclesiastes. And um, we're going to cover Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning. I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer because I am going to be, I'm going to come in pretty hot on Solomon. Um, I'm going to throttle him a little bit right in front of you. And uh, might make you uncomfortable. Um, but I'm going to do that because that's where, I'm, that's where I'm at. And I'm going to explain why I'm going to do that, obviously. But um, I have found, as I've been engaging Ecclesiastes, um, as a part of this sermon series, I keep finding myself being combative with him in his voice, his, his wisdom, his, in this book. I'm combative with him. He'll say something and I'll volley it right back in my own study with scripture that counters or counterbalances, I should say, what he's saying. Um, and um, I, I'll tell you why. I, I, uh, so I, I lost my dad when I was six years old um, and I grew up without a father. My mom didn't remarry. And I have been mentored um, immensely in and through the book of Proverbs, which is also the voice of Solomon. Uh, the book of Proverbs is a father speaking to a son. And I have probably read it a hundred times or more. Um, it is the most littered with stuff in my whole Bible. Um, it is rich and good. 
and you catch Solomon and his wisdom and his voice at one stage in his life, and in Ecclesiastes, we catch him at a very different stage. Ecclesiastes is either an autobiography or a biography on the life of Solomon. Either he penned it later or someone from even, from even further back penned it when he was deceased or over his shoulder. Um, so it's definitely wisdom literature. It belongs in the scriptures. But it, and it is a perspective on life, but it is not complete. Um, it, it is a balancing book for us. Um, Ecclesiastes, the original, um, the original title of Ecclesiastes is a Hebrew word, koholeth, um, which is taken from their word for assembly or the gathering. And um, so as it gets translated through, different, through Latin and whatever and makes its way down to us, translators are reading and going, oh, I think, I think this is talking about a person who addresses an assembly. So that's where you get um, the translation preacher or teacher for the person that is speaking, the voice behind Ecclesiastes. Oh, the teacher or the preacher, the koheleth, uh, the, the person who's addressing the assembly. Um, what we need to know coming right out of the gate is this is a preacher who has not practiced what he has preached. Period. Proverbs, Proverbs is awesome teaching, great teaching, great preaching. Ecclesiastes is the fruit of a life lived not practicing what they preached. And that is where I have found myself wrestling. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't belong in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that it's not spirit, that it wasn't carried along. But you are listening to the murmurings of a man who has had to go the, the way of the fool and experience for himself what he has taught about but did not put into practice, chasing life and happiness in other things and not God. And so you will hear that refrain, meaningless or hevel, come to the surface again and again, which is, which is we've heard the translations vapor or a wisp of smoke or um, breath but you can think fleeting. The book, if you gulp it down, feels weary and full of disappointment. Um, it, is, it is a snapshot catching a man in the wake um, of a life apart from God. It is a warning and a signpost to us in scriptures. If you only had Proverbs and you read Proverbs, you would go, oh my gosh, if I do good, only good will happen to me and I'll be rich. If you read Ecclesiastes only, you go, I guess it's live and let live because tomorrow we die. Um, in Proverbs, you hear the voice of a devoted father, a devoted dad, full of hope, full of hope. In Ecclesiastes, you hear the voice of a blown out, washed up cynic. And I want you to know, I prayed extensively about talking about Solomon this way, because to be sure, he is a greater man than I am. 
And I don't want like the Lord to deal with me tomorrow or at the judgment seat and be like, wow. You really had a lot to say about my anointed king of Israel who I met with twice. And I, um, so I prayed about it and extensive, I was like, Lord, and I had some kind of cool affirm, affirming moments happen where I think we do get to dig into the scriptures with our teeth. We get to read between the lines. We get to search things out and go, why is this irritating me, Lord? Why is his voice irritating me? When at other times, in times of rock bottom loss, I have found Ecclesiastes to be a balm for my soul. Why right now am I, do I want to throttle this drunkle? A drunk uncle. Um, and so I'm going to try and explain that to you this morning. Um, in Proverbs, we catch Solomon and everything, every moment is full of meaning. Full of meaning. Every decision affects a trajectory. Even the way that you deal with a fool, choose wisely. Because it has an impact. In Ecclesiastes, everything is Meaningless. Fleeting, vapor, breath. Um, I want to give you a few thoughts on Solomon that I think will provide some helpful context for us um, as we go. And while I do that, I'm going to have, oh, you know what I forgot to do? Let's do that. Let's, okay, here's, Sarah, are you ready? Here we go. Okay. I did want you guys to hear a little bit of Ecclesiastes read and sung in the original language because it's kind of hauntingly beautiful. And there's a lot of cultural stuff that we're gonna be coming up into and up against as a Western group dealing with an Eastern, deeply Eastern text. But I think I wanna, if it's okay, I want you to hear, I forgot to do it at the beginning, um, it sung, and so you're, we're gonna to listen to that for like 20 seconds. Here we go, listen to this. This is Ecclesiastes. ben <laughs> David Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Kind of cool, huh? Um, it belongs in the scriptures. It belongs there. And I am going to put it on the scale. I'm going to weigh it against some other scriptures this morning. Um, a brief history on where we're catching Solomon, okay? Son of David. Inheriting a unified kingdom of 12 tribes. So they had tribal leadership, they had tribal values, they had distinctness in their tribes. Under David, they're unified. We're at the, David's the second king of a unified kingdom of Israel after Saul, who was disposed rather quickly into his kingship. Um, the land before that had been ruled by um, judges, but we would probably call them generals. Um, warring generals who were raised up to kind of like deal with stuff and then would kind of quell back down. Then you have Saul, appointed by Samuel. Then you have David, who leads for 40 years. 
and hands over a kingdom to his son Solomon that is unified and looking to the Lord. The Lord appears to Solomon in a dream. This is the first appearance. And he goes, ask me for what you want. Solomon goes, I want wisdom and understanding. An excellent request, the Lord says. And goes, because you did not ask for long life or wealth and riches and fame or victory over your enemies, I am going to give you wisdom and understanding. And in addition to that, I'm going to give you wealth and fame. I'm going to give you victory over your enemies. And if you... If you honor me, long life. Incredible. It's incredible. So he begins leading. First Kings, where you pick it up, says the beginning of his ministry. His, 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 yeah, his kingship is a ministry for sure to the people of Israel. But his kingship, that every, everyone was happy and drank wine. And then a few, a few verses later it says, every man sat under his own fig tree in Israel, throughout Israel. Which is like saying um, there was prosperity and everybody had a nice back patio. Everybody had a little spot they could call home, a little spot. Taken care of, stewardship, vision, servant leadership, okay? In Deuteronomy, when Moses foresees that Israel's gonna take a king, he lays down some pretty simple precepts. Hey, when you guys have a king, Deuteronomy is a speech that Moses gives, recapping all of Exodus, when he's an old man and about to die at the top of Mount Nebo. So it's salty and it's great. And um, he goes, don't go back to Egypt. Don't trade with Egypt. Don't go back to Egypt. That king, don't let that king take too many wives. And he says some other stuff. First thing Solomon does is he takes the queen or, or the, the daughter of Pharaoh as his wife and begins a radical horse program with Egypt. Trading, trading, trading. Um, wives, he takes 700 wives plus 300 concubines. That is 1,000 lady friends. Um, I don't even know what kind of apartment complex is suitable or available for that. Um, and in Deuteronomy, it's not like they put a number on it. It's like, it's like if your HOA is like, hey, you cannot have too many chickens in this neighborhood. And you're like, well, your neighbors will know when you have too many chickens. But you might, like, your neighbors are just going to be like, hey, it's out of control over here. Hey, it's out of control over here. And so at some point, he crossed over from, like, whatever land of, like, you could have some wives or something. And we're talking about back then, so we're not going to get anachronistic on it and judge it by our standards of today. But to, I think we can all agree, too many wives. How many, how many sons do you think were found fit and ready to be king when it was time? Zero. He's sowing his oats like a madman, I would say like an addict. Zero. Zero young men ready to lead when he's done. You can judge a man by what goes on when he's in leadership. You can also watch and see what happens when he leaves. Because a leadership without a succession plan is visionless arrogance. The number 666 in scripture, which perhaps you're familiar with, is associated in Revelation with the beast, or like Satan, and, you guessed it, Solomon. The weight of gold that came into his treasury every year was 666 talents of gold every year. 
And lastly, as a gatekeeper of Israel, it was his job to keep watch over the people and be a servant to them. But under his leadership, because of his drift from the Lord, even though he was wise, he introduced the worship of demonic entities that were increasingly worse, bit by bit, until we get to Molech, that is a god that people would worship by sacrificing their children. Israel is never able to shake the grips of that demonic entry point through his leadership ever. I think Josiah maybe eradicates it for like a, for like a moment, and, but then it flows right back in. Um, as a gatekeeper, he threw them to the wolves and abandoned his post. As a father, he was derelict in his duty, focusing on places where he ought not. As a husband, you can't even begin to measure how vacant he was. But in Proverbs, we find him at the beginning, full of hope, and he's living out what he preaches, directing his son in what to watch out for and how to walk and how to live. In Ecclesiastes, we find a man muttering about how everything is fleeting and vapor and, and, all, and everybody's just going down to the grave and all this stuff that in certain seasons will meet you where you are at. But it is not a, it's not a complete perspective. It balances the wisdom literature. His son, Rehoboam, I have no idea how many children he had, but I think it was more than a 1,000. Children, which is crazy. I don't even think rabbits can do that. <laughs> given, all, all, given all necessary things for moving along. Um, when Rehoboam takes over, listen to what he says about his dad. And you tell me if this is a son who respects his father and admires him or is filled with contempt. Rehoboam takes over after his dad dies. People are gathered, elders are gathered in front of him. The beginning of Solomon's reign, everybody's sitting under their own fig tree, eating and drinking and happy. The end of Solomon's reign, his taxation is such a burden on them that they are drowning underneath it. He loved that gold that was coming in. They go, would you ease up? Would you ease up? And he goes, this is his view of his dad. He goes, my pinky is thicker than my dad's waist. I said that to Sarah last night as we were falling asleep. Sarah, my wife. My one wife. Um, <laughs> and she goes, we're, I'm super sleepy. And she's like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, it's like a East, in the East, they always have like a picture for stuff. But it's like, he's like, I am so much more than he could ever be. You thought he was something I will crush you. Is that a son who respects and admires his father? Or is that a son with a broken identity and contempt for a man who couldn't give him the time of day? So now he's got to prove who he is. And of course, Rehoboam, no respect for his father, no vision for leadership of the people. He goes to the elders and he goes, what should we do? And the old men go, if you want to be a servant leader, serve this people. 
do as they say. And he's like, he goes to his buddies, which is the worst place to go for advice ever. It's almost worse than going to like children that you would babysit. (laughs) Going to your own friends is so, so dumb when you need advice. And he goes, guys, come on. They just got done watching John Wick and they all gather around and he's like, (laughs) guys, what should we do? And they're like, they're like, they're like, oh, bro, crush them. They, they said this, you say, like, come back so much harder, bro. Your dad, oh, my dad, like, beat you with whips. I'm going to beat you with, like, cane poles, like, all this crazy talk. And you're like, surely he's not going to. And he's like, yep. He gathers all the people three days later. He's like, all right, here's my verdict. I'm going to destroy you. Ten tribes leave. Civil, it was not a civil war. A break of the nation. One tribe, one motley little tribe stays under his leadership, and the nation is divided ever since. Divided because of Solomon's son and his lack of vision, his lack of understanding of what it looked like to be a leader. This is, this is why I'm finding myself irked, because I'm like a, I felt like a few days ago as I was prepping, I felt like a kid who realized their mentor was actually way more fallible than they knew. I have sat under the teachings of Solomon in Proverbs my whole life, and it is rich. And I have, I, have, I have ran to Ecclesiastes in moments of loss, sorrow, grieving, and deep anger at death. And it has met me. But where it's meeting me now is I want to throttle him because of his hypocrisy, the preacher who does not practice what he preaches. This is what he sounds like at the end of it all. Meaningless, meaningless. Okay. Ecclesiastes is a necessary opportunity to stop and take inventory of your life. Stop and take inventory of your life. I'm going to read, I'm reading a book right now um, about how believers ought to engage time and occupy time. It's written by a really smart guy. He's so smart that I think, I honestly think it has a preface, an introduction, and a foreword, all just to get you ready for what's about to happen. (laughs) And I am in one of those three entry-level points to like the swim school that is about to be crazy. And it's rich, rich, rich. But here are some, he basically is inviting Believers, he goes, you, he goes, the reality is we must recognize when we are in history, in time. When are we? And that statement even is a weird statement because um, in the West, we kind of just think about time as one thing. It's kind of moving from left to right, and it's kind of like a train or bullet train. You can miss moments and whatever. But in, in the Greek, in the New Testament, the New Testament is littered with two different kinds of words to express time, kairos and chronos. Chronos is where we get chronograph, chronology, other chrono words, and it's, a, it's exact time and date. So I could go, what time is it, what chronos time is it right now? 11.20 a.m. on Sunday, November 5th. Kairos carries a whole different kind of meaning. It has to do with timing or opportune time or the weight of a moment or a season, or the quality of, a, of, a, of an interaction, or the right occasion. 
So I could say, what time is it for our church right now? Oh, but I could also say, no, 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 no. What time are we in as a church? What season are we literally in as a church? That's a whole different meaning. Kairos. And it requires spiritual discernment to recognize that. But if we, do not, if we do not know when we are, then we have no understanding of the importance of where we are, which is what then has us, has us answer the question, how then must you live? I am not called to live right now as if Rome is burning Christians in the gardens to light the paths. That's not the t- I don't occupy that time. I'm not to read scriptures that way. Like, what are the things pressing the church now and pressing my nation now? Do I even understand the times in which I live? And the intersection of Christ Jesus, the kingdom of heaven within, amidst us, and now. If I don't know the time in which I live, then where I stand doesn't matter, and how then must I live, I can't answer that question. So understanding the moment we find ourselves in is extremely important. He would say, in light of what has happened in Christ, faithfulness requires knowing when we are in order to discern what we are called to. If you are trying to talk to your next door neighbor about something that your grandparents talked to you about, but that is not at all where they are, you are missing it. The breath of God or the spirit of God will guide us in the breath, think hevel, the vanity, the the vapor, the, the living. The breath of God, the spirit of God will guide us in the breath of our living and going, our resting and our returning. Otherwise, it is all meaningless. Ecclesiastes serves as a warning signpost. If you pursue life and happiness in things other than God, it will all be meaningless. We are called to find where is the Spirit's restoration already afoot in creation's groaning. Partner there partner there so one of the refrains that we hear in Ecclesiastes that keeps coming up is this phrase under the sun in all my days under the sun under the sun under the sun under the sun 28 times in a 12 chapter book under the sun Solomon at this point in his life um, his eyes are down on the ground under the sun You know from the New Testament scriptures that we are called to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're not called to set our mind on earthly things. We're called to grow in our awareness of our citizenship to another country. Therefore, we don't mourn like those who mourn without hope. And we don't, um, we do not, it's why you find Christians rejoicing in their suffering. Because they are not looking down at their chains, but up to a Lord who is king of heaven and earth and orchestrates everything over the life of a son or a daughter. But he is not there. And so his perspective is from the place of a person whose eyes are on their feet and their stomach is their God. Okay, I think we're ready. Feel ready? Yeah, okay, me too. Um, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 9. I'm going to stop a couple places. You're going to see me volley back and forth with the text, other scriptures to balance or countermeasure what he is saying. Um, 
Nope. Here is a nugget for you. The Old Testament closes with a haunting sentence. Malachi. The last sentence of Malachi is this. Before the day of judgment, or the day of the Lord, I will send the great prophet Elijah to you. He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, and the hearts of children back to their fathers. Or else, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Period. Solomon, leaving his duty as a father to the wayside, is a huge deal. Motherhood, fatherhood, parenthood to the Lord Almighty, King of heaven and earth, and Lord of angel armies is a huge deal. And for me, wrestling in this text and the reckoning of do not drift away from where I put you and what I called you to be a gatekeeper over was a wonderful um, inventory check for me. Okay. Ecclesiastes 9. There are Bibles in the pews. Um, so, I reflected on all this. All this being all the stuff that Christine Cartwright, CC, preached on last week, which I can't cover right now, but you can read it or you can listen in on it. But so I reflected on all this and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one really knows whether love or hate awaits him around the corner. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. So think the religious and the irreligious. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. And this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. And there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope because even a, even a living dog is better off than a dead lion. As I'm reading this, I'm just feeling like I am hearing his heart had become hardened because you become like what you worship. Worship gold, worship women, worship their gods, destroy your own people, destroy your own family. This is where you get. Everybody just ends up in the same bucket. Everybody ends up in disposal, live and let live while you can, because tomorrow you die. Um, this is the hard-hearted heart of a man who was supposed to, it's like the dying heart of a lion. It's the murmurings, the utterings of the dying heart of a lion. Um, I think about Matthew 6, where Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths are going to eat your clothes, all your fancy splendor, and where rust is going to destroy all your buildings and stuff that you spend so long building. Instead of building into a family, you built all this stuff that is crumbled and gone now. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Perspective. Where are your eyes at? Under the sun or at the right hand where the sun is seated? Keeps going. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. I literally have written in my Bible, not true. Right next to that. Because in Proverbs 22.1, it says, Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is better than riches, fortune, wealth, all of it. Seek a good name. And Psalm 112.6 says a righteous man will never be forgotten. That's the voice of David. We're still reading Solomon's words. 
Jesus quotes the Psalms of David. Clearly, a righteous man, a righteous woman will never be forgotten. Because how we live matters. And heaven echoes with the histories of men, mankind. Jesus is marked by our history in heaven still. He looks like a lamb who was slain. He bears the scars of our own history and doesn't wipe them clean but redeems them. He is a mosaic God who gathers up the fractured bits of broken lives and broken histories and out of them makes something new. He doesn't expunge it from the record. He posts it anew for all to see and we worship him. How you live matters. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. This part. Go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it's now that God favors what you do. I, that's great. That's a great, that's, yeah, go have a great lunch today. And you should enjoy it. He missed out on that. Instead of a charcuterie board, he's like, get me every meat, every meat, every cheese, every fruit, vegetable, fill the halls with charcuterie. And he was a glutton, and he ate and then he's like, it's meaningless, burp, it's meaningless. <laughs> Instead of enjoying the seasons and the way the foliage would change in Jerusalem, he imported rare plants and would lecture on the trees of Lebanon and all this crazy stuff. And then he would go, it's meaningless. And you're like, you missed it. You missed the secret truth that contentment with godliness is of great gain. You never knew when to say enough. Always be clothed in white. The message says always wear bright clothes. So somewhere between there is the original intent of the writer. And always anoint your head with oil, which I actually do without even knowing it. Carissa, who's my haircut person, who was here in the first service, her and I laughed about this out loud in front of everyone because I have a dry scalp situation always. Like this time of year, it's just like, what is happening up top? Like, you're fine. And it's like, no, we're not. Let's flake. Let's do it. Um... And I'm like, what? But then I remembered like, oh, we had scaly babies. We had some scaly babies, you know? Like, also, you're like looking at me like, hey, I take care of this baby. But the baby looks like you don't take care of it. And then you just rub that baby down in oil. And then you put that baby in some jammies. And they can't itch and everything. And they just come out looking like a turkey on Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so at some point, I had enough wisdom to be like, I have oiled my babies. What if, what if I oil my mind? And so... I put oil on my head like every day and I've always kind of felt like a weirdo about it. I just read this, I was like, let's go. <laughs> Wisdom, I have a little bit of it. And then it goes, enjoy life with your wife, which is so audacious for him to say. You're like, bro, you don't even know what that is. You don't even know how many of your wives are alive right now because there's a thousand of them. 300 like kind of matter to you, 700 have like higher status, you don't know who's alive, you don't even speak the language of a bunch of them. You're like, hey, and they're like, I, I have seen you thrice, but I have two babies to prove it, so, and you don't even know their names, solo men. Um, enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless, all the days of this hevel life that God has given you, you know, all your hevel Days. It's like hevel, 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 meaningless. Vapor, 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 breath, breath, breath. It's so crazy because breath is the most meaningful thing on planet Earth. You're a parent. You are agonizing over that child taking its first breath. 
Watching my brother's daughter gasp for breaths because she had problems was agonizing because of how much it meant. You know what Jesus does when he's resurrected from the grave and walks through a wall and appears before them? He breathes on them, just like Aslan. It's where C.S. Lewis got that picture. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Breath. Not meaningless. Vapor, smoke, not meaningless. For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I'm just going to bounce another scripture off of this real quick. We're going to turn to Philippians and we're going to listen to Paul for a second. Paul, who would say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's what he says. Listen to his language. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He has a vision of both. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. That is a vision of life, and that is a vision of death, which is a veil. He keeps going. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. That is true. You never know what's coming around the corner. You agonize over a pregnancy, and you bury that child. It's not meaningless, though. And you think about Jesus saying, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. The pagans, they serve demons. They run after these things. What are they going to wear? What are they going to drink? And they reference Solomon. He goes, he goes, Solomon, in all his splendor, which mattered to him, was not adorned as beautifully as these wildflowers, which are here today and gone tomorrow. Do not be afraid, little flock. You will have trouble. Take heart. Buck up. Set your eyes. I have overcome the world. The kingdom of heaven is within you, in your midst. It matters. How you live matters. What you say yes to matters. Your no matters. Moreover, no one, when, no one knows when his time will come. That's true. Jesus goes, how, have you, how many of you, by worrying... For, by worrying can add a single hour to your life. Stop. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. That's true. Here's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer approached that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you might have heard of him, amazing guy, died when he was way younger than me and accomplished a heck of a lot more than I did or have or will. Um, he takes someone up on a hillside in the middle of Germany when the Reich is rising in power. So think Nazi Germany rising in power. There's an airfield out in front of him. 
that has all the planes organized, all of Germany's glory, their military might, and then it has his motley little building where he's trying to run a seminary and equip men for the times in which they live, the kairos moment of their opportunity. And he goes, this must be greater than that. And it was. And it is. Christ, who is within you, is greater than he who is within the world. It matters what you believe, how you live. When you're taking an inventory of your life, what do you worship? What do you bend your life to accommodate? What does your schedule bend to accommodate? That is a posture of worship. If somebody watches a silent video of your life for a whole week, they see where you go, they can't hear anything you're saying, they see, where they, they see where you go, they see what you do, they see who you're with, and then I tax them and I go, what do they love? Will their list agree with your list? Take inventory. It matters. There's this little part in here about a, a, like a small dude who fends off a big army. I'm skipping it. It's, it's, it's just whatever it is. I mean, it's fine. You can read it. But going to verse 17. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. This is literally a picture of how his son took the kingdom. Shouting like a fool. Ignoring the quiet words of the wise. Wisdom is better than warheads. That's the message translation. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And it reminds you of 2 Corinthians. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they actually have power and authority for upending demonic strongholds and we set ourselves up against every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. That is how we engage. Save your life, you'll lose it. Lose your life for the sake of Christ, you will know life and resurrection in abundance. It matters. Last sentence. One sinner destroys much good, or one hothead can ruin everything. You need to deal with your anger. You need to deal with your anger. You can be angry, but if it ramps you up and out into sin, you have left the way. We watch all these movies that, that we create in Hollywood about vengeance porn. It's vengeance porn. I have a special skill set, and now I'm going to fully avenge everything. It's demonic. It has nothing to do with the Lord, and it's not masculine. You know what masculine is? Jesus getting slapped when he's before the high priest, he is the high priest of heaven and earth. Somebody slaps him across the face and goes, don't you know who you're talking to? About the mafia puppet king, Ananias and Caiaphas. And he doesn't say, do you know who you're talking to? He holds his tongue and he goes, I did not know he was the high priest. Which is true, because he's not. Jesus is. A man who lives out of restraint, tempered strength. That's masculine. A hothead who runs off in every direction, leaving a wake of destruction, ruins everything. Ruins the date night, ruins the afternoon, ruins, ruins everything. 
I must get that in line with the Lord. I must take inventory so that Christ is fully formed in me. Think about the words of John the Baptist. He must become greater. I must become less. I have been deeply thankful for Ecclesiastes in other seasons. In this season, the timing of this moment with you, I think it is appropriate for me to address it and hammer it this way. Um, If my life is bent towards things that are not of the Lord, I will find myself weary, disappointed, exhausted, angry, and muttering how meaningless it all is. If I worship Jesus, obeying him, following him, I will find that nothing that he asks of me is actually a burden, even if it is hard to obey, and that he is the great liberator who, who brings my life, my, my life and my heart back to flame and roaring abundance. Despite my circumstances, I told Paul, as I was prepping for this, that this would probably be more like me walking through my neighbor's yard and pulling apples off his tree and throwing them at my kids. Um, Not me coming with like a perfectly baked apple pie, but nuggets that I think are going to sink in with each of us in different ways and places because of how we arrive today. Um, I'm going to play a song to end, and then I'll come back up and give a benediction. The song is from an EP called Vapor by a group called The Liturgists. It is three parts. It opens, if you, were to, if you want to have an amazing quiet time this week for like 30 to 40 minutes, I almost didn't preach the sermon at all and just played this EP for us. That's how much I like it. The first part is a meditation on Ecclesiastes that's beautiful. The second part is the song that we're gonna listen to right now together. It's not a two-minute song, it's a five-minute song, so just get your hearts ready for that. The last part is a centering prayer that gives lots of space for us to be mindful of where perhaps the Spirit's restoration is already afoot in creation's groaning. It's excellent. Vapor EP by the liturgists. Look it up, do it. We're gonna listen to the song, I'll come back up, I'll give a benediction. Sound good? Okay, see you in a second. Really? 
the reminder of God's mercy over a broken, sin-inclined planet, the promise of his mercy is made known to us because vapor hangs in the air after rain. The light is refracted, and we see a bow of light paint the heavens because of vapor. Nothing is meaningless. There is no meaningless moment in the life of a son or a daughter of Christ Jesus, Lord and King of heaven and earth, supreme governor of the angel armies. Our world and our city and your neighborhood desperately needs you and me to live lives marked by worshiping and following Jesus, that we would, like salt, stave the rot and return the taste of God to life as it is meant to be. We are called to illuminate. This is not how it ought to be. Like ambassadors, where I stand is the ground of another country. Come home. We can read and understand that beckoning through Ecclesiastes if you have wisdom. But if you, have don't, you on, if you don't, you only hear the grievous, weary moans of a blown out man who was a friend of brothels and wine. But Christ beckons us. God is making his appeal through you to a broken world be reconciled to God. Let us check our lives and take inventory of what we are frittering it away on in worship of worthless idols and return to him before we too at the end of our lives moan and offer something like this. I would rather us offer for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if I live, it will be fruitful labor and you will know him and I will know him. He will be lifted up and all men will be drawn unto him. Lord, would it be so over this church body, over this church family, over my life, over our lives. Would you be magnified and refracted in glorious beauty, proclaiming not that there is nothing new under the sun, but that his mercies are new every morning. Have your way, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Blessings on you. Have a great week. See you next week.